None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. So we're looking at this paper today. It's basically a it's a letter to the editor of uh, the Substance Abuse Journal in response to another. So the title of this is "The Need for Clarity and Context in Case Reports on Kratom Use Assessment and Intervention." It's uh, Kirsten Smith, Kelly Dunn, um, a couple others, uh, Grunman, who's been on the show, uh, Dr. Singh, who's been on the show. So they're responding to this study that's a case series that is called Long-Term Buprenorphine Treatment for Kratom Use Disorder, a case series. And they have a lot of points in this letter that we have been bringing up because we probably did half a dozen of these shows on case reports. One that was uh, Kratom-induced psychosis, where the guy, in addition to just using some Kratom for a week or two, had dropped all his other meds and was awake for 10 days or something before going into... Yes, and they called it Kratom-induced psychosis, where anybody that doesn't sleep for a few days is probably going to end up, uh, you know, in the close to the psych ward or, or you know until they get some sleep and that was the case with this guy he had multiple issues going on and and you know the title is kind of like uh kratom induced psychosis but what they're responding to isn't really that bad it's like 28 case reports but they have a lot of points that that this um it's it's called broyan uh, and that that had been published um, in uh, February of this year, 2022, and uh, they they look at all these case reports of people who they call it kratom use disorder, um, and they were all treated with buprenorphine. So um, and so, there's a lot of important points. Which that in and of itself, it's not bad to look at. But there's a lot of important points they bring up. They even say, you know, it, below we use Broyan and colleagues report to discuss issues that are present here, but not unique to it. Yeah, it's definitely not unique to this type of case report. Yeah, so that you know, they did use a specific cutout to say that it's not specifically about Broyan, you know, 2020, um, but they're just using that to highlight issues that that we've highlighted before and that we're used to. I do think that the Broyan sort of takes things to the next level. Um, but before we get into the points, too, you know, I was just reflecting on the author list of this: the need to clarity, uh, clarity and context in case reports on creative use assessment and intervention. And so we have the NIH. We have John Hopkins. We have uh, the Gainesville group down at the University of Florida, who published a lot in this space. We have a private incorporation in, in uh, Maryland, UC San Diego, Baltimore, and Malaysia as well. You know, the guys that, that group as well, I'm assuming they're also associated. It is sort of like a who's who amongst the space that has been researching the space, the group that's sort of like coalesced around it. So it's impressive. And so it just, 
out of curiosity, I went and looked at, at the affiliations too of the article, the Broyan article, and it looks like all of them work for a company called Ideal Option, which is a, a Suboxone company. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. The episode I had with the addiction doctors, they said that's basically what they do. They treat uh, people who come to them and say, I'm addicted to Kratom. They'll give them Suboxone. You know, I... I I'd like to go back and back and listen to that again because I was questioning my the whole idea. I think that people say, especially people that take uh, kratom and they're not opioid naive, which is a term that mm-hmm. comes up later in the article. People who take kratom now and they might have been used to to be addicted to opioids, they'll be like, "Yeah, I was like basically addicted to suboxone before I started to take kratom, and uh, mm-hmm. it seems to be going backwards with." Uh, uh, giving people uh, opioids rather than kratom that has the, but even though suboxone also has partial opioid agonism, buprenorphine does actually, and then the, the naloxone cancels mm-hmm. out the um, opioid uh, effect. But I feel like people, you know, they go both ways too. So like, yeah. there probably are. Uh, I was uh, I was hooked to suboxone, then went to kratom, and the, you know, back and forth. I think they make a good point that like. Um, within the context of these case studies, the larger scope of their drug use was not necessarily pulled in. Um, and, you know, it's almost essentially as if this, this, the medical case report was, they were uh, applying a term called creative use disorder, which is essentially just like a, like a freestyle move from opiate use disorder um, and then prescribing treatment. It's not, a, it's not a leap of faith, but it's sort of like, a game of telephone that's now gotten to the point where like we're implementing things based on a narrative that sort of started out with seeds of inaccuracies that have now just led to people, um, you know, like sort of taking that one step to the left or the right um, that you could foresee, but are necessarily not agreed upon by everybody else. So framing things into the certain light of like addiction and that, you know, that type of language, as well as not within the context of the larger clinical situation, um, I think are all valid, valid critiques and important if we actually want to get it right and, and be able to protect people. In this original study that they were uh, writing a letter about, and I'll have both of these linked uh, in the description, they said 28 people ranged in length of use from one month to 25 years. Now, can a one-month person really develop a kratom use disorder in a month? Maybe they can. No, 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 you can't. Because, I mean, just by definition, you have to have, like, negative consequences, right? Yeah. And so maybe was this, this says one month. I mean, that's, they mentioned uh, in the letter to the editor, essentially that like, it's especially risky to put people on Suboxone if they were opiate naive. And so maybe that's the, this one month window sort of like leaves that, that uh, opportunity open for that type of situation diagnosed too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really think, I mean, because Kratom generally, like most of the time people, um, I mean, you can, you can develop a dependence on Kratom. I want to say that flat out. Definitely. If you use it every day, uh, and, and, um, you can develop dependence, but that's not necessarily addiction. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about the DSM five, the di- diagnostic statistic manual of mental disorders. Uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, Define substance use disorder, and I even uh, pulled that up. But, but in general, you have to have negative consequences. Right. You can be like 
people who drink coffee every day and have withdrawals, it's kind of like that. That's a dependence. It, most people who drink coffee every day don't have addiction. They're, they don't have negative consequences. And so I think most people who use daily Kratom, that's the case with them. However, there are addictions where people are spending too much money. Uh, you know, it's it's affecting their quality of life, whatever. Right, consequences, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. so that's definitely, addiction definitely happens too. So they would call it Kratom use disorder. Uh, but one of their problems in this letter with this case series is the lack of, the, I'm going to read it, quote, the lack of description of KUD, Kratom use disorder, diagnostic methods by Broyan and colleagues, and broader use of vague terms that require clear operationalization, such as abuse, withdrawal, tolerance, dependence, addiction, reduce the interpretability of this and otherwise important work. You know, it's just like all these people had kratom use disorder, or did somebody freak out because they tried to quit and they got a headache or got the sniffles and it was really just yeah. dependence it could have been maybe a first line uh, treatment could have been like some cognitive behavioral therapy or just helping people like taper and 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 get off of it if they didn't want to do it anymore mm -hmm. especially the person who had only been using kratom a month i mean I, that's really seems like throwing some box on adam is just not a good first line type of uh thing yeah, especially yeah, if they're teetering in that situation. But I think more broadly, too, they're just like, so how did you diagnose KUD? What is K how is KUD defined and how did you actually diagnose it? Because um, that's not necessarily agreed upon. And I think especially in these situations, so we didn't know how, what the criteria was for determining and whether it was the same for everybody or different. But also to the, and this has always been a problem in the, in the case reports in the service as well, but the dosage and actually being able to rely on what the dosage numbers are and how much was actually consumed is another big problem here because you can't really establish like a valid dose response curve. We don't know anything about, though well, we, we know, we know, we know a lot about sort of like the, the bars on it. Right. But, you know, they, they also make the point that at some of these doses, you know, there's like a, you, you can't, you can't physically consume that much plant. And there's also, you know, you start to get things like the wobbles, you start to feel nauseous, you don't have the respiratory depression, but there are like negative reinforcements that tend to slow people down before they ever reach anything that would truly be considered like risky, you know, medically. It's a letter, uh, opinion piece by scientists. And so they're divided into, we advocate for, and, um, uniformity in reporting of kratom dose levels so i think it's something we talked about before and all of these mm -hmm. they don't know what type of kratom this person is using it, you run into it in the toxicology things too like mm -hmm. if you show up at somebody's house and they have a couple of kratom trees then that's all the kratom they use then i really doubt that that the the reason they uh, died was because of kratom. Uh, if it's if it's like powder, maybe if they could have really shoved it down and not uh, vomited and not aspirated on the vomit. So like 850 grams a day is what they were saying in this case. Yeah, like th this is th eight that's, cups of water. Yeah, that's the really stark mistake here. I I'll read it. Um, because uh, the authors did not specify the amount and type of Kratom product, and we suspect they use grams as a standardized measurement unit across product types that may have induced liquids, 
e.g. Kratom tea. This would explain the statement that some patients had been ingesting more than 850 grams per day. Uh, 850 grams is the weight of eight cups of water, and it would be an extraordinarily high daily intake of either raw or powdered dry plant matter. Uh, Additional outliers in the case series included six patients who ingested more than 100 grams per day, resulting in an average of 92 grams a day across patients. That's an extremely high amount. 850 grams is 1.8 pounds. Yeah. Per day, that's uh, that's insane. That's insane, and it's it's just not right, and it's not accurate, and it's like not helping anybody. It's it's not helping doctors help people who do have uh, dependence or addiction issues. It's it's just who actually so yeah want to sort of yeah for sure, and who who want to do right by it. I mean, th- those are just wild numbers, and the, and the the that the dosing's been off like that is so much, but. I didn't necessarily know the like sort of takeaway from the, the, that section for me, the sort of note was I didn't realize that it was a direct extrapolation. I remember, you know, five, six years ago, the range of like, okay, uh, below five grams is stimulatory, more than five grams or around 10 grams is where you get the more sedative effects. That yeah. was like a generally broadly held community belief. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize that that was directly extrapolated from the seven hydroxymetragenine in mice, you know, just ba- for based on size, like a simple calculation of kilograms per grams up to a human size. And that certainly um, doesn't reflect the, the complexity of the reality there. Yeah, because I mean, personally, I, I take a four gram dose. That's oh, I did seven once and I got queasy, nauseated. Six. But yeah. four grams gives me the the mild opioid effect as well as mostly stimulant. It's probably like 80 percent stimulant, 20 percent uh, opioid, but nothing near sedated. However, that's four grams. I, I think five is a pretty heavy dose and it would give, give anyone. But what they did is um, Broyan got it from uh chien c-h-i-n maybe that's the telephone right yeah so they got that from that chien got it from matsumoto the matsumoto study was just seven h seven hmg study in mice and i think even then i haven't i should have did the one more thing where i looked um to see if the grams were extrapolated properly like they, mm-hmm, they, they did mm-hmm. the um uh human to animal animal dose thing and i don't even know if they did that and so yeah that was from a 7 hmg study so that's what it goes back to so it's definitely the game of telephone right there yeah well and i think that we most recently too like we we were doing it was like a a very modern approach i think they were using maybe time of flight analytical chemistry and they were saying that the seven hydroxy might not even be to blame for it. Like it's it's much rarer than what is commonly believed. I think that wasn't too too many episodes back. Well, and so we're just talking about five grams, right? And how five grams, yeah. like you know, for for certain people would be a lot and maybe too much. And that is, you know, they're talking about eight hundred and fifty grams. It's just I think a total lack of connection to anything that's actually happening on the ground. If you could think that people could consume that much I, I you see people on reddit say 50 grams a day and then and then they get a bunch of comments yo that's too much you know taper down one person claimed 100 but 850 is yeah so- i mean it's essentially equivalent to like in the black market street drugs when someone says well, i took 
800 micrograms of acid, you know, like, yeah, no, you didn't. That's, that's crazy talk. You don't even know what you're talking about. Like <laughs> people aren't measuring trip. it and can't measure it that accurately. And that's, those numbers are just all completely made up. Like it's more marketing than anything else. And that's sort of the state that we're in with, with uh, Kratom without the uh, standardized uh, methods for calculating and reporting dose. Yeah, and I I really wish they wouldn't probably never have the resources to do this, but I really wish the alkaloid levels should be tested because like a person that has does too much kratom goes to the doctor says I want to get help getting off, uh, they might be taking a heavy like adrenergic uh, alkaloid kratom uh, and they like the uh, speeding stimulating effects yeah so we still over in those yeah. other systems dopamine and serotonin so with without the product being standardized you can't really you can't really have a case report where it says the kratom did this i mean especially if you're looking at isolated seven hydroxy mouse studies as well yeah just yeah. extrapolated at a dose there um for yeah. sure but, you know what they didn't this last section here, we advocate for cases to be presented transparently as omitted cases may contain valuable information. It's like, you know, um, null does not equal zero. And so if you're talking about the 28 cases where there were people that were diagnosed with KUD and then put on the suboxone and that was successful, but not how many were not, you know, how many negative results or how false positive results were there, not even reporting that or mentioning it makes it real tough you know, because you're essentially just highlighting the one outcome of potential, you know, four to five outcomes that you went into sort of presupposing the experiment. Yeah, the nature of case reports is to skew toward extreme cases and unusual interventions. Uh, those reports should be published, but many, but may distort clinical reality if they omit relevant denominators. Right. Uh, in this instance, a cause of patients who presented with kratom use but did not meet. KUD diagnostic criteria or did not warrant introduction into buprenorphine naloxone. I mean, the doctor might have just said, you know, go home and try uh, your best not to use it. And maybe they had a couple days where they had a, the sniffles and maybe they were like, hey, doc, I did it. I mean, yeah, even, well, there even was, my you know, poly says, drug use. There yeah. was, a, there was a, a whole number of outcomes that could have, like, happened except for like we gave you know they were diagnosed and then given this treatment that was successful there are many you know the by far probably the most common outcome is that like it's a continuing struggle that is bouncing back and forth between different treatment approaches and you know it's sort of messy you know what i mean yeah yeah and and it says you know either detailed patient histories and assessments are being conducted but not reported or they're not being conducted. We did another paper, uh, Kirsten's, where she did the, the Kentucky jail inmates and and how many people mm -hmm. use kratom and also used other drugs. So she did a lot of work on that. So like that's really important. And then especially if this this whole um, issue of being opioid naive, if you're going to introduce people to buprenorphine it's a bit it's better if they know exactly what they're getting into uh if if they're gonna do like a pharmacological treatment way, approach treatment, yeah. treatment yeah 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 and you were mentioning like cognitive behavioral therapy being a good first line option before suboxone it's also probably a good time to get my you know episode cannabis plug in like that would be probably a preferable 
treatment route before yeah. um, going over to, to Suboxone treatment, which we ran into that in Ohio where I was trying to get the opiate use disorder as a quali- qualified method and they wouldn't do it. They said that it's not there and that the only qualified method is the Suboxone. So it was like, um, you know, this situation again, where uh, <sighs> it's not, it's, it's on shaky ground and it seems to be favoring one outcome. That's not really reality. So the Sorry. only like essentially legal treatment for opiate use disorder in Ohio is um, Suboxone or other long-term opiate treatment. And that's for people who are in trouble within the justice system. The only option they're able to go through for treating uh, the disorder, like if they were going to the, in prison is Suboxone. Um, It's the only ones that the insurance cover. And it's the only one, like they wouldn't allow cannabis even to be put on a list of options, leaving it solely for the, there are more options here. And so like limiting the perspective of the actual playing field and and focusing on these these sort of extreme cases, while they need to be reported, but to omit it and, or leave it up to the point where you don't know if if they did it and it was just omitted or they even did it at all. Like that's not good reporting of, of, you know, your scientific research. One of the first or second things they bring up, yeah, right after mm-hmm. the inf- intros, we advocate for context and specificity regarding Kratom's U.S. regulatory status. So, I'll just read what the um, the letter said. It said, Kratom remains unscheduled by the DEA, but the author's statement that scheduling decisions reflected, quote, debates from both sides quote unquote was nonspecific and thereby inaccurate. Kratom's DEA status is largely due to insufficient data for appropriate scheduling and concerns about public health risks of banning licitly market Kratom. So yeah, both sides is nonspecific and it really just <laughs> I just hate when people say both sides for anything like politics, everything. It just just like takes away the complexity of any issue, topic, everything. It's just like there's not two sides, it's, especially in the sciences. There's a bunch of angles you can look at it from. Um, yeah, it's like a, a willful ignorance, right? And they're calling yeah. out with this letter to editor this like continued willful ignorance over decades now of research and especially when it comes to reporting case studies of kratom's dangers when we talked about it, when we did the jane baben white sheet episode uh we talked about how the dea's initial decision to schedule was based on like the database search of my and deaths and the fda coming out there's 44 kratom related deaths uh and then you know when you look on into it it's gunshot wounds everything like that so it their decision to schedule wasn't based on this from the beginning yeah 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 yeah. pessimistic way to look at it i guess i don't know but essentially that you know that's how the laws get written in america is that there are interests that draft laws and then bring them to the desks and say this is what we want to do no industries are uh, exempt from that when it comes down to the politics of it. But uh, yeah, it seems now that there is, you know, a growing group within the, there's a larger like base and it's sort of like people pushing back against these in the right channels in the right way with the right sort of um, perspective and acknowledgement of the broader context is, is getting louder. So it's good to see. And they even say in the letter, uh, buprenorphine naloxone, which is suboxone, may be the best treatment for patients with moderate to severe kratom use disorder who are not opioid naive 
especially if they have a history of opioid use disorder and who wish to, mm-hmm. and who wish to begin pharmacotherapy. But this should be carefully determined on a case by case basis. Right, like the acknowledgement to that the pharmacotherapy isn't the only option. Yeah, that, and uh, and they also mentioned that it works. It doesn't just work on the opioid receptors, and I said that before, where you know mm-hmm. somebody might be like the stimulant effects, and they're not. You know, if you're going to give them suboxone, they, it might not even. Imagine if getting suboxone was as hard as an abortion. Yeah. <laughs> if you got to wait twenty four hours, we have to ask these questions and record your answers, including like. Have you searched your consciousness for this evil thing you're about to do? It's wild. Yeah, it's just it's it just seems to be this boxing is the is the thing now, and I don't think it's necessarily bad at all. I, I just think there's just a profit motive behind it from the pharmaceutical industry now, and it was actually being prescribed for pain. Uh, Claudia Mirandi told me she's like the opioid pain patient advocate, and she said suboxone was even being prescribed for pain issues and that doesn't make sense because it has naloxone in it so it cancels out uh you know they're, they're just kind of trying to use it for everything and, and 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 i didn't realize that this uh group was uh you know suboxone you know. I, didn't, I didn't know that either until like literally you were reading the list and i was like well gosh i forgot you know it's like oh you should always check uh, the affiliations of the people really in the yeah for I, sure. did. I did i should have what's the company it's uh Ideal option. PLC. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like it, the same thing happened to me in the early grad school, where I was reading a paper about nicotine and zebrafish, and it was just like nicotine is great. Like after reading all of these papers about how like drugs that cause withdrawal and like these negative symptoms in zebrafish, nicotine seemed to like not cause any. It was just striking. Like, gosh, this is awfully like pro nicotine. Um, and then I looked, and it was written by a company that was a tobacco company. Yeah. So it's like, oh <laughs> shit. Yeah, you got to remember that. That's. I mean, like me, I could write all pro kratom stuff, but I want to explore this stuff. And nobody tells me not to have addiction doctors on, and nobody tells me not to say kratom causes, but people can get addicted to it. And yeah, it's yeah. not riskless, right? Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody's really saying that. I think we're just saying like the risks are over. Uh, emphasize and continue to be overemphasized. Yeah. And, and, I, don't th- and uh, I don't think it helps because then then it has led to um, people, you know, just going online and being like, oh, they're all lying about it. It's kind of the same thing uh, that they overemphasize the dam- dangers of marijuana and, you know, like a whole ooh. generation thinks, well, heroin and everything doesn't have uh risks because the man lied to us and i mean really with weed you keep, there's uh things involved with it risks <laughs> imagine if you consumed 850 grams of weed two pounds of weed in a day Jeez. that's aggressive <laughs> well yeah i remember they did that. one of the first of these things i read it was probably like jack hair or something but there was a monkey study where they it was probably in the 60s i mean it had to be early because they were killing monkeys on purpose where they they put like a mask on the monkeys and they would just like shovel like a pound of smoke a pound's worth of pot smoke into the monkey's face and of course they died they probably asphyxiated on the smoke yeah and uh so of course you know the uh anti-drug people took that and said Oh, looky, they, it killed monkeys and there are close relatives. And and did acknowledge the possibility of the lack of oxygen. Like that's sort of the, the analogy here to the broader 
to the broader points brought up in the letter that are, I'm, I'm glad to see it. I'm glad to see that like these are now getting played by people with real credentials in real journals. They're not just like blog posts or Reddit comments anymore, but like you got to call it out because you can't just let it continue and let this medical decisions be made that uh, don't acknowledge the reality or the diversity of the outcomes. There. Shout, shout out to Dr. Kirsten Smith. Oh, she's uh, she announced it too, but she's going to she'll be done at NIDA next year, and she's going to she has a job at Johns Hopkins. So is she is she a postdoc at NIDA? I think so. Yeah. I wish this didn't continue happening. It's just sort of like uh, a bummer to see it and see it continue to happen, and like that that this this is going to the next step of, and this is the treatment that works. Use this treatment. Like that's the. That's the take-home message. It's I, not I, just that yeah. people are getting addicted, but they're they're addicted after a month, and they should get this as the first line treatment. That's like you know carrying things too far. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I really think a lot of these, uh, most probably, most of these twenty-eight, I would bet, I would put money on that they could have probably gotten out with some kind of behavioral therapy or or just support or you know. It's- well, most of them probably didn't make it out, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. But the this the the like forty percent that did or didn't that didn't have prior poly drug use. So it just seems like there's such a like we're talking about twenty percent or ten percent of the population. Yeah, let's see. I think they said something like eighty. Uh, okay, of the twenty-eight pa- patients, sixty-eight, eighty-two, and eighty-two percent had negative test results for mitragynine at four, eight, and twelve weeks of treatment, respectively. That's what they can tell from. Where that, uh, do you know where case. these people are from? Where, like, where, um, where in the country yes. are we? They say in the original article. Um, Various clinic locations, Alaska, Washington, Belmont, Oak Harbor, Olympia. So mostly West Coast, up and down the Pacific Coast. Um, And I didn't go awfully diverse. I didn't go through their um, their references list, but a few of them might have been stuff that we had looked at. Stance you is one of them, and he was the guy. He was the addiction psychiatrist that was on, but, is, but he did a systematic, a systematic review. So. I didn't realize that in this first paper there was like the table daily buprenorphine doses throughout treatment. So how to treat people, and then based on table two is essentially saying based on what kratom they were using, here's the dose that you need to give them of the suboxone. So yeah. it's essentially a treatment you know framework they said it you know that's it seems to work with with severe cases and and i hope it does it's just it's sort of like i'm not saying it's wrong to do i mean right, right, I, right, I know right. i and i know like, yeah like i should state on the other hand on the other hand it it might work for a lot of it, and this letter even says it may work for moderate to severe cases it seems like it does basically they're saying and that's what I was, yeah it was, that's what i was saying i'm sort of bummed that like we see this continue to happen because it's like you don't want to come on and then just bash an article um as if it's or, or demonize it right that's not the point i think that's you know that's why in the letter to that editor they said it's not specifically about this because it's not specifically about this this mm-hmm. paper so you I, you know i try to go into the podcast episode recordings with an open mind, but I feel like I've said that. I feel like I broke a record at this point, but it's like, <laughs> that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't want to get people to get the impression that, 
Because some people are just looking things like, are they pro or are they anti? And actually, when I sat down with uh, Dr. Smith at at dinner, she was like adamant that so I'm not pro or anti cranium. I'm looking at what does this do, and, mm-hmm. and how is it affecting populations? And, and she's like uh, on kind of the psychology, social science uh, end of things, and and she's looking at. Who who uses other drugs with kratom? How is it helping people? Mm-hmm. How's how can it be hurting people? It's not. She's not. She has a job at Johns Hopkins. She's not. You know, gonna join in the kratom either, commercial uh, space. Yeah, 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 that or Suboxone or the Suboxone. Right. You know. So right, it's right. It's, uh, it's good to know that they're doing this work, and I'm not trying to hot. I'm trying to, you know, give people an adequate assessment of the risks. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure these 28 people had a problem with Kratom, had some kind of problem. So it's it's not uh, one or the other, but it's like, let's be more accurate and let's look at... Uh, it's just, I think across the board, maybe it's like a whole thing of looking at psychoactive drug use or drug use that isn't uh, FDA approved uh, in a more maybe empathetic way. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of just emerging, it seems like. And it, it seems like there's a lot of these former sis- systematic ways to look at uh, dependence, addiction, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, but I think with a lot of these scientists they're trying to you know up the level of actually taking out the sort of puritanical tracks of thinking and and having a more like evidence-based scientific way of thinking about drug use as a health problem versus as a moral right. problem that we have to get away from this thing or you know right etc for sure but, for yeah. sure it's a, it's a drum beat that's been going but it's getting louder What was the other thing you um you were talking about about um something going on with um, the state and cannabis data? In 2019, I asked the state for all of the metric data through a public records request, and it was me and a reporter and another patient. And you know, it was it was a couple months of waiting. Then they sent us a, like as a PDF. Then they sent it as like printouts, and we're like, we want the the Excel sheet. And so we finally got the Excel sheet after sort of pushing back. And then this year I requested them and they said they denied the request. And so just asking them what has changed? Like they claim they don't have no. the authority or the records don't exist. And they're just sort of like dragging their feet again. Now, you said now. metric data, but we should say uh, this is from Ohio's medical marijuana program. Yeah. The state's track and trace uh, and you said software. It was like public safety data. Yeah, well, all cannabis testing data is public safety data. So okay. The I just wanted to done. specify what that was. They're public records. There's no way okay. they're not public records. And in 2019, they were public records. And, and it's as easy as going to, like, file export as CSV in the software. So this, like, sort of feigning that it's a difficult thing or that they don't have access to it is just some just bureaucratic nightmare. It took them 80, 80 days just to tell me that. Um, so it's, it's been frustrating, but you know, we're interested in looking at broad trends and patterns and use. Like it's not, we, we should have access the community should have access to that data, especially the health data. What do you think the motivation is for not wanting to put that out? I don't, I don't know. 
maybe because <laughs> I give them a hard time. You know, I, uh, the, there's no reason why the companies wouldn't want it out there. It's already out there. It's a, it's an information that's available and easily accessible. Um, just to, you get frustrated by the claim that it's not public or they don't have access to it. And it's like, that's not true. And it wasn't true in 2019. So can you just explain to me what's changed between then and now? And there's no response, no reply at all. And what, what specific, specific data would that be like? Just okay. the analytical test results. So like uh, pesticide test levels, heavy metal okay. test levels, cannabinoids, terpenes, if there was any molds or mycotoxins or foreign matter. The terpenes aren't actually in the metric system in Ohio because they're not mandated. The product type, the flow of it through the market, but not aligning it with the patient records um, in any way. Come on, give them the data, Ohio. The heck? Thank you, Dr. John Cachet. Check him out at Jay Cachet on social media. Check us out at Kratom Science on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, please like, subscribe, comment, rate, review, share. That really helps us out. The music is Captain Big Wheel. This song is called Moonrunner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.